Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, hello. Wow. Gotcha. Welcome to Wednesday night. Uh, we are very glad to have you guys with us this evening. My name is Elijah Daly, and I get to be one of the ministers here on staff. I get to be one of the teaching pastors, and I really um, get to enjoy this role. And I'm very thankful that I get to share so much of what I get to do with really skilled and talented and gifted people uh, like Jim and Shane. And so uh, obviously Jim has been with us throughout this series, throughout this semester, looking at the book of Revelation in a little bit more detail than we get to do on a Sunday morning. And it kind of feels weird that we've been out of that series uh, for as long as we have already. It seems like it was like forever ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, but if you remember, Shane was with us and he helped open up the series and he began a conversation with Mark to really open up the book and talk a little bit through it as we prepared our hearts for God to reveal himself through it. And so tonight, uh, what we wanted to do was wrap up our semester by simply asking, uh, well, really asking you to ask questions and beginning to answer some. So tonight, that's what we hope to do. If you will notice, there is a number on the screen. You can text in any other questions that you might receive uh, you know, as we begin to work through all of this. I don't know who you are on here, okay? So just don't be mean to me, but, uh, but, but please put them in and we would be glad to get them through and as much as we can. And then we've been collecting some already. So we have a list of some that you guys have been asking, but if more come up, please ask them. We're gonna do the best we can to get through them all, but my guess is we won't because this book is just so good, it has so much meat to it. Uh, so we're just going to start chewing on the steak tonight, all right? So um, first off, just to start lightly, appetizer, okay? Uh, what I want to do first is simply ask you guys, what what ways has Revelation shaped your discipleship in Christ? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Um, immensely. Uh, matter of fact, it's just it's just a book that hasn't let me go. For about 20 years now, the first time I really heard anything on Revelation was when I went to Ozark Christian College, and I finally took a class on it because the churches I grew up in, we didn't do forums like this. Uh, we didn't talk about Revelation. It was something that was ignored, and you know, and if it was spoken, it was usually in hushed tones. And, um, and I remember going into that class in, in, um, uh, at Ozark and thinking, this is something I want to be able to figure out and to solve and answer all my questions. And little did I know that what was going to be dissected was not the text, but was me. I mean, it is a book that uh, confronts me in all the right ways. It's a book that uh, consistently paints pictures of Jesus and then calls me to walk in the same path. Uh, the book of Revelation for me, and I know this is weird, uh, but I also have the longest hair on stage, so weird is my kind of area. That's just the way I roll. Uh, but it is the book uh, that has changed me more than any other books. It's helped me understand who Jesus is more deeply. And I know that um, that's not typically people's interaction with Revelation. But uh, yeah, so for me, it's been massively shaping. Yeah, mine's a little bit different than that in a sense, uh, somewhat sermonically. I just recognize I need a bigger view of Jesus. And that when I have a bigger view of Jesus, it, it shapes how I view myself and also just my world. And so in my own discipleship, it's almost like the, the uh, Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father who art in heaven. Like we need to start with that part of the prayer because we need to understand that God's on his throne, that God's in heaven. And then we can pray for things like daily bread, uh, your will be done. 
forgive us our sins. And it's that bigger understanding of Jesus that I need to hold on to um, as I'm interacting in just the mundane ways, sometimes with my family or with uh, you know fear over current events or finances or whatever that might be, um, but also in my own relationships with others, recognizing that we're accountable um, in those ways. And so Revelation, Shane and I went to seminary together. We were in the uh, same class in seminary. Um, and so in many ways, like Shane, uh, a paper he wrote in seminary shaped my view of Revelation chapter 20. And so it's also um, been, over the course of my time studying, um, helpful for me to even frame up uh, looking ahead to the future and, and realizing that we live with this hope and that we should always be living with that tension between what Jesus did in the past and what we believe is going to happen in the future. And, and that should shape the now. That should shape what we're doing right now. A fun fact, uh, in case you didn't know this, Jim and I not only went to seminary together, but Jim was my RA whenever I was a freshman at Ozark. So just throw that out there. Jim's had to discipline me before. <laughs> For too long of hair, is that right? <laughs> I'd, forgotten, I'd forgotten about that, yeah. Well, I, uh, again, I'm just thankful that we have you guys to, to be up here, not only to show how this book has shaped you, but hopefully help you kind of explain more and more so it can shape us. And so my next question for, for you guys, uh, Jim, I'll throw this one to you, is in terms of revelation, we find m- many varying degrees of interpretation when it comes to this book. Uh, people can can fall in different categories, what we've made, what we've made into categories. And so for, for you, Jim, I want to ask, does the church have to agree on a specific interpretation of Revelation um, when it comes to this book? And my understanding of that is really the answer, no, in, in some of the understandings that are on the more difficult side. There are some things about Revelation that I would say, yes, we absolutely need to agree on those when it comes to the core essentials of doctrine. So if that's God on the throne, if that's Jesus on the throne, um, those are things that we need to come together with and agree on. But there are parts of Revelation that are unclear that we interpret differently, and we can worship together around God on the throne, around Jesus on the throne, and have some of those differences in understanding. Oh, yeah, I, I would agree. The answer is no. Um, it actually reminds me of something that um, Dr. Lowry, our, our mutual professor who taught us Revelation, uh, we used to always say, he said, Shane, the older that I get and the more that I study, the less essentials I have. And I used to think, I mean, I was brazen, I was 23, and I'm like, the more I study, the more I actually have an opinion on things. And, but as I'm getting older, I'm realizing, huh, there's wisdom there. Um, we, love to div- we love to create ways to divide in the church. It's unbelievable. Like, we just, we just, we find, we're very creative when it comes to how we're going to divide uh, but, but whenever it comes to what the book of Revelation is even calling us to, it is. It's calling us to this. There are some things that are essential, like who is Jesus? And is he 100% God and 100% human? Because that's a non-negotiable when it comes to being a Christian. But when it comes to whether or not you think, you know, you're pre or post or ah, you know, no, it doesn't, it isn't a, a um, there is not a doctrine or a council in the history of the church that said you have to choose one interpretive way of revelation, otherwise you're anathema. It just isn't that way, and I think that's healthy. It's okay for us to disagree, and as Christians, we should be the people that demonstrate to the world how to do it and stay unified, because the blood of Jesus should be able to unite us. So no, you don't have to disagree with me. I tell my students that at Ozark all the time. You can disagree with me and get an A. You just have to do it respectfully, and then you have to tell me why so that I have a chance to grow. Um, and so hopefully the conversations, even when we disagree, it's an opportunity for us to learn from each other. And I've, that's one of the reasons why I love the body of Christ and things like this, you know. Yeah, and you know, I remember 
um, a couple of years ago, I taught through the book of Daniel, and we went through you know, all these major views of how they might influence that book. And I remember somebody asking me the question, well, what, what position does our church take on this? And I was like, honestly, our church doesn't take a position on this because the reality is what we believe about God, the most fundamental parts that we believe about God has, has nothing to do with the timeline that we want to subscribe to. It has everything to do with the fact that he's coming again. And we want every single person to respond to the gospel so that they can enjoy that coming when he does come. And so um, our, our goal is really that you would even hear that tonight and every single time we talk about anything like this is that the whole point is to see Jesus clearly. Um, so, but tonight I also want to ask this question um, because I know obviously when you take a certain interpretation of the, of, of Revelation, some people think that it may impact the way you, you interpret all of the Bible. And so how do we manage that? How do we begin to know how to interpret certain passages in context in the way that we should? And, and those of you who have been in the Wednesday night class know that one of the ways I'm starting from as a context is what would have John's audience understood him to have been saying is that John was writing this, and they, the seven churches were his original audience. And so they had to have had some base level of understanding so that this could impact their own discipleship and their understanding of who they were as disciples and who Jesus was as their Savior, as their Messiah, as their King. And so that base level of context uh, and author's intended meaning, uh, who the author is, is John. Who is the audience? It's these seven churches. That's a, that's a starting baseline. And I would say that that distinctive is at times unique. Uh, sometimes we come to Revelation and we're actually thinking that we're the, we're the primary audience. And so we're looking ahead to our future and we think it's pointing towards things that are in our headlines today. So that's a nuance that, that I would see as different and one of the ways that I'd communicate that. I think that can be in, imposed on other texts as well. Um, even you know, in the Gospels, that could be true of, of the way we interpret parables of Jesus. Uh, that can be true of prophetic texts and some things like that. Yeah, honestly, um, it does. How you view Revelation and your interpretive way of engaging it will impact the way you look at the rest of the Bible and vice versa. Um, I, I've actually been spending a lot of time in my classes talking about this with my students this semester, where I say it, it's, a, it's an actual like a, um, a principle that I would help students wrestle with their time management and their schedule. So they come to me and they're like, hey, I have these like five opportunities. You know, I'm so excited about them, but which one should I take? I think I'm going to do this one. And this is the question I always ask them. I always say, whenever you're saying yes to this, do you know what you're saying no to? That's the question I ask them. And if they're like, well, no, I don't know what I'm saying no to. I say, okay, well, then I would wait until you know what you're saying no to before you say yes to this event or to this internship. Because every yes has a no. And the same thing is true with what you believe. You know, because you say yes to Jesus, you're saying no to Allah. Because you say yes to Jesus, by default, you're saying no to other things. And the same thing is true when you're saying yes to certain ways of reading Revelation. And the danger is, is when you're saying, yes, this is how I read it, but you don't know what you're saying no to. Or, on the flip side, you, don't, you aren't aware of the ripple effect of saying yes about this to Revelation and how it impacts other texts. So let me give you one example. Hopefully it'll be quick, okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 12, there's this interesting interaction between Jesus and the teachers of the law where they accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub. You, you guys ever heard of this one? 
They're like, we, no, you're, you're, you're casting out demons because you are possessed by Satan. And Jesus was like, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. Because a kingdom divided will fall. He's like, no, I'm, I'm, if I'm actually casting out demons, it's because I am establishing the kingdom of God through the finger of God, the power of God. And there's this belief that that was the moment when Jesus switched gears, switched courses, where he was trying to establish the kingdom with Israel. But after that moment, he went to plan B, which was the cross. Now, hang with me. This, is, this comes from, this belief comes from a way of reading Revelation that says that the kingdom is in the future in this thousand-year reign. If that is true, if it's in the future, then they point to when Jesus decided to press pause on the kingdom and delay it for the future. And if that's true, here's where it's really significant. Do you know what happens before Matthew chapter 12? The Sermon on the Mount. You ever heard of that one? Those three beautiful chapters? Well, because of the way that this particular group reads Revelation, they say that the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with the church because at the time Jesus was saying it, he was establishing a kingdom, but he pressed pause on that plan. So the Sermon on the Mount is not about you, it's about the future kingdom, which at that point I'm going like, what? I like the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's kind of fun. But the way in which you read Revelation also impacts the way in which you're allowed to read things like Matthew 5 through 7. And the problem is, is a lot of times we don't know that's what we're committing to until you take what you believe and push it to its furthest extent. So what I would say is this. Yes, how you read Revelation does impact the Bible. The problem is, is a lot of us, aren't, we haven't wrestled with what we believe long enough to know what is flowing into it and what flows out of it. And that's whenever it can start to get a little crazy. Does that, does that make sense on some level? Or are you like, this long-haired hippie is just rambling and I need Elijah to save us? But does that make sense on some level? Okay. I would, you know, add to that, and I don't know necessarily, add, add to what I said earlier uh, to this. If Revelation is merely making me speculate on the newspaper and on the news, then, then there's, in my mind, an inherent weakness in that rather than Revelation being that mirror that we talked about where I'm actually asking questions about my own discipleship and my own faith and my own allegiance to Jesus. And so one of the dangers I see of how we, in kind of popular level Christianity, how we use Revelation is that we use it to speculate on all these current events, and we never ask the question, so what does Revelation teach me about how to follow Jesus more faithfully? Or what is it teaching us as a church about how to live through suffering or, or difficulty? Um, and so we, we've actually twisted the purpose of Revelation to meet some of our own, I would just say, you know, kind of the curiosities we have and speculations we have. And, and John's intentional goal is to point people to Jesus and to have them follow him more faithfully until he comes again. And so we, we can, I think, go shallow with it, even though we think we're going deep because we're trying to solve a mystery. It feels deep. But discipleship isn't about some of the, the speculations. Discipleship is about more faithfully following Jesus. So as we begin to kind of unpack more and more, dive deeper into these different views, uh, one of the questions that commonly comes up is trying to corroborate these different aspects of Scripture with the book of Revelation, you know, depending upon what interpretation you take, kind of like what you've been, you've been talking about a little bit with, with Matthew 12. So in light of that, these, the, probably the two biggest ones that come to people's mind is when Jesus is talking about when the disciples should look for the end in Matthew 24. 
And then he talks as well, or Paul talks in, in uh, Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness. So Shay, I'll throw this one to you. How do those fit in to the chronology of what we are, what, what's been being talked about in scripture? <laughs> yeah. How much time do we have? Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, man, those are actually two very different texts to approach. You want to take the Thessalonians text and I'll take the gospel text and we'll just kind of, let's bounce yeah, back we and can forth. do that. Okay. okay, then let me switch out of Matthew. Okay. Yeah, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we get this concept of a man of lawlessness. Ever heard of that? You know, this future man of lawlessness that right before everything goes bad. Some people refer to him as the Antichrist. Ever heard of that? Little, little hint. This is something that's just important to remember. Okay. If you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. That's, that's really an important principle to remember. And that's actually what Jim was even talking about with you know, the headlines. And bottom line is, you take the Bible out of context, you can actually make it speak to whatever you want. And the same is true with Matthew 24, and the same is true with 2 Thessalonians 2. Because here's one of the key little things about Revelation. The word antichrist never appears in all 22 chapters. Not once. Like, and, I, and I like to just kind of say that and set it in because it's, we, we come to Revelation and we have this set of questions that we say, you must answer these. Or where is the Antichrist in the book of Revelation? And my response back is, what if Revelation doesn't want to answer your question? Are we going to allow Revelation to speak? Or are we going to look at Revelation and say, you will answer what I ask you? You know what I mean? It's like, but if Revelation never uses the word Antichrist, then maybe the question should be, why am I pushing it in there? Like, if it's such an important component, why didn't John say it in the 404 verses that he, that he wrote? Now, Antichrist does appear in the Bible, but it's actually in John's letters, the Yohannine epistles, and he actually says the Antichrist is present among us, and it's anyone that believes that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. But John's writing this in the first century. But it's really strange how we take what he says is present in the first century and we pull it out of context and we throw it into Revelation even though Revelation never even says the word. So there's a part of this whenever I approach this, I say, okay, I'm going to be relentless in asking the question, what is Paul or what is John answering and not what is the answer to my question? You see the difference in that? Because what I've also found is even if we're asking the wrong questions of the text, you'll still find an answer. We'll still find it, but what if it's not the question Revelation wants to answer? So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see this man of lawlessness, and we get super excited uh, because he's setting up this image in the temple, and he's demanding to be worshipped, and then there's this interesting thing, this mysterious hand that holds it back, and, but we forget that Paul's actually responding to a question from the church of Thessalonica. Like The first thing you need to remember, and this is what Jim was saying, we're overhearing a conversation. 2 Thessalonians 2 wasn't first written to us. Paul's a pastor. He's a minister. And his church is struggling with an issue. And he sits down to address it by writing to the church of Thessalonica at least the second letter, 2 Thessalonians. So what's the issue they're wrestling with in chapter 2? They're wrestling with this question. Um, did Jesus come back and we miss it? That's what they're asking. Why? Well, let's read uh, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's start in verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming. 
He says, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. That'll be important here in a minute. Whether by a prophecy or by word or by mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Apparently, some people had written the church of Thessalonica pretending to be Paul, saying, the second coming's already happened and you missed it. And they're freaking out. That's why at the end of 2 Thessalonians 3, do you notice uh, uh, verse 17? Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. He's trying to say, okay, if you ever get a letter that's saying it's from me, compare the handwriting, please. Because I didn't say that you missed the second coming. So that's the question at hand. And Jesus gave two predictions, massive ones, that he says, after I die, these two things will happen. Number one, I will come again. That's one of his predictions. And this will help whenever we go to Matthew 24. Number two, though, he says this, the temple will be destroyed. That was a massive one that just threw the disciples for a loop. They're like, wait a minute, what? The temple's going to be destroyed? Well, if the temple's destroyed, that must be at the end of everything. And Jesus in Matthew 24 has to be like, no. Like, they're actually two different events. But Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica that believes the second coming's already come. And this is what Paul's answer to them is. That's not possible. The temple hasn't even been destroyed yet. That's what he's saying. And so let me tell you, let me show you how he is saying that. This is written in around 50 to 51. That's whenever the letter of Thessalonica was written. One of our earliest letters is 1 Thessalonians, possibly Galatians. It's one of the very earliest. But that's about 20 years or so before the temple will be destroyed in 70. That's a big marker, 70 AD, big deal. But about 10 to 11 years before this letter is written, there was a crazy dude that was emperor by the name of Caligula. The guy was a bona fide psycho, out of control. Caligula only reigns for two years because finally, one of the Roman soldiers just couldn't take it anymore, and Caligula called him an effeminate name, and he's just like, I'm going to kill you, and he just stabs him. But Caligula was crazy. Caligula demanded to be worshipped in the flesh. He was like, nah, you're going to worship me now as God. So he starts having statues of himself made. And one of the Greeks who hated the Jews of the Roman Empire, down in these, these cities called Jamnia and Dora, decided we're going to take an image of Caligula and put it in the synagogue. Now the Jews have a problem, a big problem. Because Jews do not believe in graven images, right? It's desecrated their space of worship. So the Jews initially do what you're supposed to do in the civil type of, of a dispute. They send lawyers up to, to Caligula. And they're saying, hey, you know, you're supposed to allow us to have this level of freedom in our worship, but, but they've put this in there and that doesn't allow us to have this level of freedom in our worship. And while the lawyers are up there arguing, some of the Jews down in Jamia and Dora go, we're tired of waiting. And they smash the image of Caligula. Which Caligula goes, I'm sorry, you did what to my image? Those are, those are fighting actions. He took big offense to it. He goes, okay, this is what I'm gonna do instead. As a response to you smashing my image, I'm going to create an image of half myself, half Zeus. It's gonna be around nine feet tall and I'm gonna put it up in the temple in Jerusalem. Now we'll see how you like this, Jews. And man, everybody in the Roman Empire was like, oh no, this is going to cause a war. The, the Jews are going to go insane. They're going to start actually rioting because they knew this was, the Jews didn't mess around with this type of stuff. 
So literally, everybody kind of starts slow playing it. Like even the guy chiseling the, the, the statue is like, oh no, I broke the nose again. Like they're trying to find ways to stall because they knew if it got there, matter of fact, Josephus, a first century uh, Jewish Roman historian said that if the statue would have made it to the temple in 41, that the temple would have been destroyed then. And he starts talking about around this time how Christians started to bail out of the city of Jerusalem like, like a sailor or like sailors in a sinking ship because they were going, oh, Jesus told us this was going to happen. Get out. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Caligula's executed. Now, here's one thing that's interesting. When you read about the man of lawlessness, what are some of the key images about him? He puts up an image in the temple. He demands to be worshipped. But all of a sudden, there's this mysterious hand that's holding back, and it takes away the ability. And this is what Paul is saying. There's no way that you miss the second coming because the temple hasn't even been destroyed yet. We thought it was going to be 12 years ago, and it will be. It will be. But if that hasn't happened yet, don't, don't feel like that you've, been, that you've missed the boat. Relax. That's not who our God is. He will not leave his children. He will not allow us to just sit in this world and miss the second coming. No, no, no. When the second coming comes, no one will miss it. It will be obvious. But we still have the temple. And that's what 2 Thessalonians 2 is about. So, sorry, I wish it was more like, you know, Nicolas Cage left behind-ish, but it just isn't. Like, Nikolai Carpathia is not the man of lawlessness. I'm really sorry. Because that's just not what the pastor Paul was talking to the church of Thessalonica about. But hey, take the Bible out of context, we can make it say whatever we want, right? I think on the Matthew 24 text, um, when it comes to one of the interpretive lenses we've had, again, is the lens that says when Jesus is talking, he's talking to his disciples and there's a historical moment that's taking place there. And, and we need to understand it, again, in that context, in that historical perspective. Some of the things that the disciples would have viewed as unimaginable are things that we would view unimaginable today. For instance, the fall of the nation in which we live. For the Jewish disciples, for the disciples of Jesus, they're standing at the foot of the temple. The, the stones there are massive. I mean, kind of look at the, the block of the stage that we're on, and that's one of the stones at the base of the temple. And, and they're looking at these stones, they're looking at these buildings, and they're thinking, you know, Jesus just predicted the fact that they're going to be torn down, not one stone standing on another. That must be the end of the world. And they're, they're conflating the two. They're putting the two moments together because they can't imagine that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and it wouldn't also be the end of the world. And so Jesus, in answering their question in Matthew 24, and this is most clear, I think, in, in Matthew's text, separates those two moments out and gives them birth pains and signs of what will be true before that temple is going to be destroyed. That's why Christians are leaving uh, when they see some of these signs that take place, even early, and then later on as we get closer to 70 AD when the temple would be destroyed. But then as we get further on in, in Matthew 24, Jesus goes, but about that day, verse 36, but about that day, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And in Matthew, which I think, again, is, is more clear than, than the parallel passage in the Gospels, um, the separation out of those is helping for the disciples clarify that these are actually two separate things, unlike what they would have imagined is that they would only be one event, that when the temple is destroyed as a symbol of the cosmos, a symbol of God's creation, that creation would be decreated as well. And, and what we actually have then is Jesus separating those out and a new understanding for the disciples 
okay, I'm not going to know. And I think Christians are, are having this understanding revealed to them by Jesus. It's, it's new for them. And as we look at Revelation, what we discover is that temple imagery still is a picture of the cosmos. It's this new creation that God has created in us right now, but it's also this new creation that we have promised for us, that we will dwell in the temple again. And so that, that promised temple is this presence that we're going to have with God, that, that fuller picture of what the temple is, is that we'll dwell in Eden, a restored Eden, or in a restored temple where we, we dwell in God's presence as his people. Anything you'd add to that? No, I think that was great. I think it might be helpful too. And just a reminder, you know, that number's up there. Please text in questions. I'm sure as we get into the meat of this stuff, I'm sure that there's just lots of things running through your head that you were like, can you clarify that? Can you just talk a little bit more about that? So please uh, just send those, text those in, and we'll get those um, going as well. But <clears throat> one of the things I want to I wanna ask you guys is, you know, in light of us talking about Matthew 24, Thessalonians, how these fit together, we are kind of addressing this in a way that is talking towards, I would say, the dispensational aspect of, of reading um, Revelation. You know, and so for those, of the, for, um, for those of us in the room that are like, we don't know exactly what all the views are, um, we have heard different things about different, you know, views, but but maybe just clarifying a little bit about maybe what the differences would be about the millennial views. And so I know we, we've, we've talked about this before in different classes, uh, maybe you have touched on them even throughout this Revelation class, but the point is, you know, in light of these views, how do these other millennial views take Matthew 24 and Thessalonians? Do they see them in the same way as dispensationalism, or is this a way that dispensationalism veers off, or what, what do these other views do with these texts? I dealt with this last week in Wednesday night class. I would not consider myself an expert on it uh, by any means. But when it comes to even post-millennialism, I, I don't know that that's really held in common uh, right now. And I mentioned last week, just for the sake of those of you who are new, um, when it comes to the post-millennial view, that was really popular kind of as, um, I would even say, enlightenment moving toward uh, pre-World War I, humanism was on the rise, industrial revolution, progress, and the idea that everything was going to progress to the point where Jesus' kingdom was going to be established and then it, he would reign here. Well, World War I and World War II kind of put the kibosh on that in the sense of like, we're not getting better. Things are getting worse. And, and so if, if anything, you know, that view is a view that's not widely held. That was, uh, even in, in our movement of Christian churches, widely held at one point in time. Uh, so the two, you know, the three views that we're left with then would be the amillennial view, which has been the perspective, I mentioned it last week, uh, has been the perspective I've been teaching the Wednesday night class, which is the understanding that that thousand-year reign is symbolic for the time when, when Christ inaugurates his kingdom at the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, and is a symbolic time period for that kingdom that lasts until he returns, and, and that kingdom is established in that new heaven, new earth. So if you want to elaborate on dispensational. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really important to understand that these categories of thinking exist, but I'm going to be totally honest, they wear me out. Like, like if I, maybe they're important to know, okay? So, so hear me whenever I say what, what Jim did last week, super important, what he just did right there and what I'm about to do. It is important because they exist. And, and I tell my students all the time, like 90% of scholarship is hard work in just learning the grammar, just learning what the words mean. And it's like, oh, dispensational, and that's thrown out there, and it has more than two syllables. And it's like, what just happened? You know, is that Greek? No, it's English. It's a bummer, but it is. 
Uh, but, but it's ways of, of answering the question about the second coming of Jesus. They're all looking at it from that perspective. What happens and how does it happen? You know, as he's mentioned, you have this post-millennial that says things get really, 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 really good, and then Jesus comes back, and then, but there's a lot of nuances even within the people of post-millennialism. You have then this other category that actually contains two. This is super, I'm sorry, it's just what it is. This other category is called premillennialism, but it actually contains two that don't like each other underneath it. They don't. They really have a hard time with each other. So you have historic premillennialism, and they do not really believe in this rapture. They don't believe in a lot of that, the, the tribulation period. That's not them at all. They do believe that there will be this on-earth thousand-year reign, but even whether or not it's a literal thousand years, they're like, me. It doesn't really matter. It's just that it's going to happen on earth. That's historic premillennialism. And we can trace that all the way back to like the third, second century. Okay, so that one's not a new kid on the block. Then there's dispensationalism that's also under premillennialism. Okay, dispensationalism is the Left Behind series. It's the one that's looking for this seven years and will the, will the rapture happen pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Then there's this thousand-year reign of Jesus just... If, you know, watch the Kirk Cameron or the, you know, the Left Behind series. That's dispensationalism. And they believe, the reason why the word dispensation is they believe that actually it isn't seven literal churches that the book of Revelation is being written to, but that each of the churches represent a time period in the church or a dispensation in the church. So that's what they teach, and they're the ones that look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and Matthew 24 uh, in the unique way, and it is unique amongst all of the options. They look at it in the unique way of seeing Matthew 24, especially verses 40 and 41, where two will be in the field, one will be taken as a rapture, and seeing 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness, as this antichrist figure. However, you will find nuances of differing opinions inside of every single option. And then there's another option. There is one more that doesn't get a lot of playtime, but you will come across it. It's called preterism. Again, these words are just exhausting. But preterism, which means this. This is basically, this is what a hyper-preterist would say. Everything that was talked about the temple or Jesus' second coming has already been fulfilled at the time of the first century. There is nothing in the future. That, that's one of, kind of one of the, it's kind of like the other four believe that there's something in the future still, not this one. As a matter of fact, in an email conversation I had with the preterist, he said, Shane, what you need to understand is instead of keep saying, uh, amen, come Lord Jesus, that we need to start saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, because you already came. So that, that one is a little bit different, but that's how each of, them, each of them are saying yes to something. And as a result, they're saying no to other things. And that's where it comes back to the very beginning. You have to know what you're saying yes to. And then the question becomes, are you sure you want to say yes to that? So I don't know if that answers the yeah, question. Yeah, I but. think for sure. You know, we just, those are million dollar words. You know, there's big ones. And the reality is, if you've grown up in the church, if you've grown up in different denominations, you have probably encountered different aspects of this, this wide spectrum that exists. And so I think that's really helpful for us to begin to um, process why we are beginning to answer some of these questions the way that we do, um, because I think that, especially in light of Matthew 24 and Thessalonians, um, you know, as we begin to see how those fit into Scripture and what, what 
Paul is trying to do and what Matthew's trying to do, it is helpful to see how um, we begin to process through those things in light of the different spectrum, in light of the spectrum that exists. Um, so I want to ask this question. Uh, this one came in in light of the, the rapture, right? So this rapture is specifically unique to the dispensational view, to that dispensational millennial view. And so the question is, will it, is there a rapture? Will it happen? Does the Bible talk about it? So who wants to, who wants to tackle that one? I'll do it so if they run me out, then you can still stay and love everybody. Does that sound good? I mean, you know, I've, I'll take one for the team. Um, yeah, you know, this is the big question I get. Matter of fact, some of the nastiest emails I've ever received in my entire life were over this issue. One of them even ended with saying, you, sir, should have a millstone tied around your neck and dropped in the sea. And I was like, wow, at least you're biblical and vivid. Like, that's intense. Um, here, l- l- let me tell you my answer, and then you can get mad, throw a thing or two. I'll wait three seconds, and then, and then I'll tell you why, Okay. Um, the answer is, no, I do not believe that the, ba- that the rapture is biblical. One, two, three. Okay, now I'll tell you why. It's for two reasons, um, and both of them matter to me, but, but, but I understand there are smart people that don't agree with me on this, okay? So this goes back to the earlier questions. It's okay to disagree There's nowhere in church history in the Bible where it says, if you don't believe in the rapture, then you're going to burn in hell as a false prophet. And I know, I know that there's an intensity of any time we disagree with something that matters to us. Here's why why I hesitate to even give my answer on this, and I understand why we ask it, but I don't like having to be this person, and I don't want Jim to have to get hit for it. Because I understand that a lot of us in here, we learned about Jesus and the rapture from like our grandma or our grandpa that means a lot to us and they're no longer living. Now all of a sudden, some random doctorate with long hair comes in and says, well, maybe they were wrong. And something flares up in that moment where it's just like, how dare you say that about my grandma? Here's what I want to say. Love your grandma. And If you want to disagree with me, in, in, in order to honor her, I'm okay with that. Because guess what? We'll still get to talk about it with your grandma in heaven whenever we all go there. Like, it's, it's okay to disagree. It's all right. So let me tell you where I am on this journey, okay? First one, the reason I have a problem with the rapture is, is history. I actually, one-third of my PhD is in history. Like, I'm a historian. I love history. I think history helps us understand who we are. It, it, it helps us understand this present moment. And so usually anytime I come across any sort of interpretation, my first question is, I wonder where I can find this in history. Well, whenever I did this digging on the rapture, here was the surprising thing. The first time in the history of the church that the concept of the church being raptured out before or during a time of tribulation, first time it was ever mentioned was 1830 by a woman by the name of Margaret MacDonald in Scotland, which I actually did my PhD in Scotland, and at one point, it's funny because they don't believe in the rapture over there. And at a certain point, they're like, how could you guys believe that? And I looked at them and I was like, you're the one that gave it to us, what do you mean? It's like, it came from Scotland, man. Uh, Margaret MacDonald, 1830, put herself into a, a self-induced fever to go into a prophetic trance. And when she went into the trance, she then wrote down this letter that she was receiving from this fever, and I have, I have a copy of the letter in my office at Ozark, uh, and it was the first time in the history of the world this idea of the church being raptured out. The word rapture never appears in the Bible one time. Get a concordance and look up the word rapture. It just 
isn't in there. Now, the, you'll, you'll say, but the image of it is, that's fine, but I at least want us to know that the words that we're using, the Bible isn't using it, and that we should just at least be able to admit that. It doesn't mean it's wrong, because the word Trinity isn't in the Bible either, and I kind of like that word. But at least it should just give you pause. That's it. But Margaret MacDonald in 1830 has this, has this vision, and it ends up getting to the ears of a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby, who is also in the UK. And he starts to put the theological muscle around this idea, really influencing a group of people known as the Plymouth Brethren. And six times over the next about 25 to 30 years, John Nelson Darby starts coming across the sea to America, this new frontier, and he's bringing this message of the rapture of the church. It eventually influences a guy by the name of Cyrus Schofield, who ends up writing what is the very first study Bible in the English language known as the Schofield Reference Bible. Ever heard of that? 1907, 1909, 1914, it was reprinted in those two years. And it was a powerful tool. But the problem was people stopped distinguishing the inspired words at the top and the uninspired words at the bottom. They started seeing them as synonymous. And, and that begins to influence a lot of people. One of the people in influence was a guy by the name of Dwight L. Moody, only one of the greatest evangelists of the entire 20th century, the greatest evangelist of the first half of the 20th century. As a matter of fact, when we were in Scotland, my family and I, we went to a church in downtown Edinburgh for the six months that we lived there, and it was established by Dwight L. Moody. Like, the guy was just an evangelist to no end. But everywhere he went and planted a church... He took this rapture theology with him, and it influenced a lot of people, including another person that you might have heard of by the name of Billy Graham. Ever heard of that one? Who believed in a rapture and everywhere, who, who might have been the greatest evangelist of the second half of the 20th century. In the 1970s, he writes a book known as Approaching Hoofbeats, which espouses the concept of the rapture. In the 1980s, then we have this guy by the name of Edgar Wisenot that puts out this book pamphlet called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Happens in 1988, followed up by the riveting 89 Reasons Why It Will Happen in 1989. And then in 1990, a guy by the name of Tim LaHaye and his buddy Jerry Jenkins puts out this book known as the Left Behind series. And that first copy alone sold 80 million copies before it was made into movies by Nicolas Cage and by... This is how, in around 180, 190 years, that a position that the first 1,800 years of the church had never heard of becomes the dominant position of the church where a lot of people don't even know there's other options. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It just gives me pause. It just makes me go, huh, that's late in the game. Like Augustine never talked about this, or Tertullian, or Martin Luther, or that, that's, that's late in the game. Doesn't mean it's wrong but it should just at least say, I probably need to make sure I know what I'm saying yes to. Then comes my second reason is the Bible. So Matthew 24, we've already gone there, but I, I referenced that passage that everybody gets super excited about. You know, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 40-ish, I think. Is it 40 and 41? Yeah, 40 and 41. Two men will be in the field... One will be taken and the other left. Rapture! Like, you ever heard that? 41. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. See? Well, I'm going to throw out this word that I'm sure Jim has used about a thousand times over the last, you know, several weeks. But we should read it in context. Because if you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. So, Jim's already read verse 36. The conversation is about the second coming. 
Verse 36 in Matthew 24 says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Usually whenever I read that text, I always look at the church and say, so can we please stop predicting? If the Son doesn't know when he's going to come, can you just try not to outdo Jesus? Like, please, let's just let's stop predicting. Because every prediction in the history of the church has one thing in common. It's been wrong. So let's stop. In every other year, there's a new something that we've uncovered, you know, it was just the blood red moon. Well, those came and went, and what happened? The same thing every other prediction happened. It didn't occur, because that's not what we were called to do, was to predict. We were called to live as if Jesus could come back at any minute. So, so we should take the time that we're using to predict and try to figure out when he's coming and use that instead to disciple ourselves into the image of Jesus more clearly. Because what 2020 taught me was that this world desperately needs the church to be the church. And stop getting distracted. But I just got, I just got distracted. So, okay. Verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah. So, Jesus is being a good preacher. He's using an illustration. He's like, you remember Noah? Remember that guy? You know, Noah in the ark? If you don't know the story, rent Bruce Almighty. It tells a little bit of a different version of it. But, but Noah, and Noah is, he's like, as it was in the days of Noah, this is what he says, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So he says, the way it was at the time of Noah, it will happen when Jesus comes back again. Now notice how every time Jesus talks about the good, he always uses the singular person, Noah. Now, we know it was Noah and his family, but Jesus just never uses the plural. He always uses singular. And every time Jesus is talking about the evil in the time of Noah, he uses plural. That'll be important uh, for this next verse, verse 38. For in the days before the flood, people, plural, so plural equals evil, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah, singular, entered the ark. Why would Jesus do that? So that you can tell the difference between the two groups, okay? So, so far, here's the illustration. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. You have all these evil people out there eating, drinking, giving a marriage, even up to the day that Noah, singular, went into the ark. And then it says this. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them, plural, all away. Who did the flood sweep away? Who did it take away in the time of Noah? The evil. Noah and his family were in the ark, floating on the water, which was covering the earth. And whenever the water recedes, they weren't swept away. They still stayed. Remember the story of Noah? It says it came and took them, the evil ones, all away. And then he says this, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And then right after he says that comes verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. And here's my question. In context, who is taken away? Evil. Not the good. So part of my problem with the rapture is I'm like, you got the wrong people being left behind. The evil is swept away. Not us. And that's not a Bible trick. That's just reading it in context. That's just being honest with what Jesus was saying when he used the illustration of Noah. At this point with the history, and then even with the key biblical text, I go, I'm sorry, I just don't find this compelling. But you're allowed to disagree with me and get an A. It's totally fine. But we just need to know why we disagree so we can help each other. That's it. 
And just, you know, kind of in a nutshell, I would add to that the First Thessalonians text, First Thessalonians 4.17, the meet the Lord in the air language. That, that's technical language going back again to the historical context of going out to welcome in a conquering king or going out to welcome in an emperor and, and welcoming them, them into the city. And, and, and my understanding of that is new creation. I mean, we're, we do meet Jesus, but it's a welcoming party. We're welcoming him here as this new city, new creation, new people. Would that be your understanding of First Thessalonians four? Yeah, yeah. Your point to First Thessalonians four thirteen through through I like eighteen because and the reason why enough seventeen is the key verse. Matter of fact, seventeen is where we even get so so rapture comes from a Latin word that means to take away. That in the Latin Vulgate was what was in First Thessalonians four seventeen, uh, and then we bring it into English and and then we create a whole concept around it. But, but, but chapter uh, 4, verses 13 through 18, the key thing is in verse 18, it says, encourage each other with these words. That's what Pastor Paul is doing for the church of Thessalonica. And here's the key question of chapter 4, 13 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians. If we die as Christians, do we miss the second coming? That's the question. And that's, a, that's an important question. Why? Do you remember whenever Paul was at Thessalonica, what ended up happening? He didn't get to spend a ton of time with them and explain to them all this nuances. He got swept away so quick. So he kind of gets to the story like, Jesus is coming back, but they didn't get to ask him these questions. He gets pulled away, and now they're like, oh no, my mom died, and, she, and the second coming hasn't happened. Does she miss it, even if she's a Christian? And this is what Paul does in verses 13 through 18. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. The dead in Christ are with him first. They're actually in a better position than you and I that are living on earth because they're already with him. And when he comes back, they will be with him first. And matter of fact, Christ is so concerned about you being united with your loved ones that you don't even have to wait for them to come all the way down. He will allow you to embrace them in the air as we all come down to the new creation and hang out here for eternity. And one of the things I also find really humorous about that is that there's this concept of the rapture. It's a secret rapture. It's a silent. It happens super quick. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's like, there's going to be a trumpet, there's an angel that's screaming, and I'm like, it's not silent at all. And there's no indication that when we go up there and we're loving our loved ones, that Jesus says, stop here for seven years. We're just going to hang. He doesn't, no, actually the word means that you, it's like whenever somebody is coming, an emperor is coming to the city, you go out and meet them and you join the parade to the destination he's going to. That's the word. So the parade doesn't stop. You just get to join it as you embrace your loved ones because that's what Jesus does. He unites us. He doesn't keep us separated. Or if you die, matter of fact, then it frees the Thessalonians to start sacrificing themselves for the gospel. So at that point, I'm going, if we want to take this out of context and talk about some rapture, I get it. It just, if you take the Bible out of context, you can make it talk about whatever you want. Next thing you know, you know, Obama's the Antichrist and who knows who else is the next Antichrist? I literally have a, blog, a list of blogs that has named every president since I started counting back at the first or the second George Bush that's saying, this was the Antichrist. I'm like, oh, here's another one. <laughs> and that's one of the questions that was had is historically, since you know, your background is in kind of the history, especially interpretation of Revelation. One of the questions was asked was, what are some of the historical interpretations of 666? Um, because I've mentioned a few of them, UPC code, um, yeah. Vaccines. I mean, we've mentioned several of them in class as just, but it goes on. And so I don't know if you have even just from top of mind, here are some other things that 666 has been translated. And then if you missed, when we talked about this, um, my understanding of it is that that is a reference to the beast, 
which, which is just a way of saying you're not marked with Jesus, you're, you're following the dragon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, man. 666 is one of those things where, you know, the Bible is used as a weapon all the time to destroy other people. Like, Christians even do this, you know what I mean? As a matter of fact, the, the first church of Revelation, the church of Ephesus, Jesus uh, gets really rowdy with them. Because he says, man, when it comes to the truth, you guys are stinking good. Whenever people come in and they say, we're prophets, we're apostles, you test them and, and you find out that they're not, great job. He goes, but you do it without loving people. You kill people with truth, but you do not love them into moments of transformation. And he looks at the church of Ephesus and he says, I'm this close to removing your lampstand. Because you're getting all the questions right, but you're doing it in a way that's destroying people. And that is never what I called you to do. I did not call you to hang people on crosses. I called you to carry a cross. And there's a big difference, church. It's a big deal. But my goodness, 666 has been used throughout the last 2,000 years to call everybody all kinds of names. Matter of fact, during the Reformation, the, the, the Catholic Church found a way to make Martin Luther's name equal 666, while Martin Luther and his camp found a way to make the Pope's name equal 666. Anybody you don't like, you can find a way to twist and make it be 666. Even sometimes it can just play into our fear. So I have a clipping from Yahoo News. Every once in a while, I'll get on there. This was several years ago. It still exists. It Yahoo does, News. Believe it or not, <laughs> I think they're shutting down the email, but they keep their news going. Yep. Um, but I have this. Uh, it's this article of this guy that quits his job because when they gave him his ID card, his updated ID card, it contained six 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 in the middle, and he's like, "If you embrace the number, then you're gonna go to hell." And I was like, "Homie, believe it or not." When John was writing to the churches of Revelation in the first century, I don't think he was going, I need to take into account computer codes and ID tags. Like, like I've said this before, and some people get a little offended, and I don't know why, but I'm going to say it again, because, hey, give you an opportunity to get mad about something, okay? Um, but I'm like, it, 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 666 and my salvation has never been determined by technology. I don't understand this. So people are kind of freaking out about like the vaccine and, and they're freaking out about 5G and they're freaking out about microchips. And I'm like, hey, you don't accidentally fall into salvation and you don't accidentally fall out of it. And technology is not what brought me to Jesus and it's not what will keep me from him. Because Paul says, neither life nor death, height or death, nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus. So the vaccine, bring it on. <laughs> it just, we're, we're taking something and we're allowing the Bible to be ripped out of context and then it just stokes fear. And I'm going, really? Jesus' sacrifice can't cover a vaccine? Who wants to argue that? I thought Jesus' sacrifice covered everything that was broken. I thought it covered all kinds of sins that I really, really hope he can take care of in my life. But a microchip's going to blow it all? At that point, I go, wow, then the microchip has a power that apparently God himself cannot outflank. At that point, then maybe we should start thinking about worshiping a microchip because usually power is what it is that we worship. But I thought God, the omniscient, all-powerful, loving God is the one that has infinite power and deserves our worship. No. 666 is actually very simple. It really isn't complicated, and it's this. Who you worship and who you belong to should be so obvious, it should be like it's stamped on your head and forehand. And so I tell my students this, I say, if your theology doesn't impact every single thing that you do, it's absolutely worthless. 
even down to the reason why I have long hair, it actually is connected to a theological reason. Okay, I, I first started growing out my hair long whenever I started my PhD in 2009. I took a modified Nazarite vow, and I said this, I want to look in the mirror every single day and know I'm doing something that without God I will not be able to accomplish. And then I got it cut in 2014 when I finished, and I cut off eight, 14 inches, and as they're cutting it off, they were like, you know you can donate this to people. I said, for what? Who wants my hair? And they're like, well, people that are going through chemotherapy or going through tough times, that we turn them into wigs and we can give it to them for free. And I was like, so me growing out my hair can give someone dignity in a, di a difficult time of their life? They said, yeah. And I said, well, then I'm going to do that for the rest of my life because I want my theology to even impact how long I grow my hair. And that's what 666 is all about. Who you worship, you become. If you are worshiping the unholy trinity, don't be surprised when you start looking like the trinity and even have the name of that unholy trinity put on your forehead. But there's a reason why in chapter 14, verse 1, the very next verse after 666 in the book of Revelation, it says, and then there is the 144,000, those Christians that have come from the suffering of the earth. And it says, and on their head was stamped the name of the Lamb and of God. And if you take those names and you add them up, it equals 777. This isn't hard. It's actually just as simple as this. Are you living like Jesus? And is it obvious to everyone around you? That's probably a way more difficult question to answer than whether or not a microchip is going to take you down into the abyss. That's good, yeah. And that's what, I mean, I, that's what the book of Revelation should be doing to us, is helping us ask these hard questions. And I'm really excited to see next semester, when we start up new classes again, how everyone's hair is a foot longer. <laughs> It'll be amazing. We'll all know who was in this class. Uh, no, but I, I think that's, those are really important parts. And um, one of the things that, one of the questions people ask, and I think kind of plays into what you're talking about with just the fear of it, the fear that sometimes we feel when we're reading through a book like Revelation, or we're, we're hearing about how Jesus is describing what we might go through is the tribulation, right? So maybe I could throw this one to you, or, and you guys can both tackle it, whatever you want to do, but what is the tribulation? And if there's not a rapture, you know, which I know there's different even concepts of when the rapture would happen, right? If, if it's pre or mid or post, whatever. But the point is, if, if there's a tribulation, why would God let his church go through it? That was one of the questions that was asked. So, That's a great question. And in our class, we talk about the fact that right at the beginning of the, the book of Revelation, John opens up with a greeting and says, John, your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom. And so he identifies himself as someone who is already walking through this tribulation that's taking place. And even when you take Jesus's own life and his experience of the cross, that, in, in my understanding of even the Gospels in the New Testament, is the inauguration of what we should expect to experience as his people, as people who are followers of Jesus, is that we pick up our cross and we follow him, and it will be difficult. It will not be easy. To me, it's a very Western, even more narrowly, American approach um, to the New Testament, to discipleship, to think that we will not suffer and that suffering is some future thing that is going to happen. When for the history of the church and even the present day church, for many, persecution, tribulation, suffering is a very present everyday reality. And, and so in, just in my own experience, that, that's a very easy thing for us to project onto the future, to someday things are going to get really bad. But that reality has actually been happening 
since the inauguration of the church and, and since what, you know, from what we find in the book of Acts and on. And, and so with that, I look at that tribulation language that John uses. It says, I'm with you in this. And Revelation gives us really two options. And that's one of the things I love about Revelation is it really just says, so where's your loyalty? And if your loyalty is with Jesus, Revelation should comfort you. And, and that's maybe, you know, kind of growing up, my own lens of reading Revelation and being, I mentioned President Proctor talks about it like being a haunted house, president of Ozark Christian College. You know, some of us have been afraid of it. But for those of us who are following Jesus, it should actually bring us comfort, not fear. And yet, if we have not aligned our allegiance to Jesus, if we are marked by the culture around us, the world around us, if we're dwellers of the earth rather than citizens of heaven, if we're followers of the dragon rather than followers of the lamb, then we should have an element of being revealed or exposed before God for who we really are without Jesus' blood covering us. And if revelation makes you anxious or nervous or feeling exposed because you're guilty, you need to ask the question, so what do I believe about Jesus and my relationship with the cross? Because if I believe that Jesus has covered my sins, and if I've made that decision and, and given Jesus my allegiance as my king, as my Messiah, as my savior, then, then part of you needs to recognize you need to be free of that fear and that guilt. The gospel is good news for you. But if you've not made that decision to follow Jesus and give him your allegiance and follow him as your Savior and your Lord, then revelation should cause you to feel like your sin has not yet been dealt with. And so you should be asking the question, so what do I need to do in response to what Jesus has already done for me? And, and that's part of it. As we see that tribulation, we go, I don't want to project that on the future because some of you go, I'm going through that right now. How much more can I go through? And yes, you can, be you can be persecuted. You can be physically killed. There are people, however, right now that that's happening for them. That's happening for these seven churches. We read about it in the seven letters. So something to kind of wrap up my statement is by saying, not only does John say I'm your partner, but he talks like the church in Smyrna. He says, this is you. This tribulation is something you're going through as well. And so will that tribulation be something we all experience at the same level? No, because not even the early disciples experienced tribulation at the same level. John, after all, is an old man at this point in time. He's seen his friends, his partners in ministry, die for their faith. Their blood is crying out from the altar. I don't know that I would want to tell John that the tribulation is something that's way down the road when he's going, People I love and I've pastored with and people I've walked with in discipleship, they're dead because of their faith. And so again, the way that I understand Revelation and the, the interpretive lens is John is writing to an audience that needs to hear this message. Is it relevant to them? Yes. Is it relevant to us? Yes, because this is always going to be something that is true until Christ's return, until he finally separates those who are in allegiance to him and those who have rejected him. Would you yeah, I, I think what I would add is, um, you know, a servant's not greater than their master. Like, you know, the question of, um, like, Jesus came to this earth and, and he suffered, and he actually didn't give us a way to escape our own suffering. He actually gave us the ability to endure. And that's why Revelation 1-9, what you referenced, you know, I, John, a brother and companion in the suffering in the kingdom. And then he says, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ. Um, it is important to remember the words seven-year tribulation never appears in the entire Bible. Again, it's just one of those, like, look it up in a concordance. 
And, and I always come back to that because I, I'm very worried about using terms and key concepts that the Bible itself doesn't use. Now, how do you get it? You can grab this passage over here and pull this one over here and put it together, and now we have seven years of tribulation. But actually, the way that the whole New Testament especially talks about is that, is that the suffering began when Jesus was born. This is what Revelation chapter 12, this is the question of Revelation 12. The question that's being asked of Revelation 12 is the churches of Asia Minor are going, how come we are suffering if you establish the kingdom? John goes, let's go back to that silent night, holy night. I don't know if you remember this, but whenever I was talking with Mark uh, on the stage here, I don't remember how many weeks ago, it's been a good long semester. Um, so 20 weeks ago. Uh, but, but I said, you know, actually, Revelation 12 is a picture of Christmas. And it's actually showing the dragon pursuing Mary and then pursuing our master Jesus. And then he ends up pursuing even heaven where he goes and fights in verse 7 and Michael and the archangels. They cast him out. And then verses 10 through 12, there's a song. Anytime there's singing in Revelation, it's an interpretive key. It's unlocking the important part of that chapter. And it says this, the accuser has been cast out of heaven. He can't accuse you anymore. And then it says in verse 11, they overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the testimony of the saints that would not shrink from death. That if death came, the Christians would not back down. They would say, that's okay. Do what you came to do. Take my life because it literally just means I get to hang out with Jesus now. But then verse 12 says that the dragon has been cast down to the earth and he knows his time is short, so he's raging in fury. And then right after that, verses 13 and through 17, he starts going after the woman again. She's taken care of. And then it says he has now turned his attention to start pursuing her offspring. And then it says, which are God's people who obey his commands. Like, matter of fact, the book of Revelation is even indicating that we as followers of Jesus are being targeted by something that is not flesh and blood. And there are multiple strategies of Satan to destroy us. One of them is to attack us and try to kill us and to make us terrorized through fear of our bodies being destroyed. He's trying that with the Church of China right now, and it's not working very well for him because the Church of China is still exploding. But one of the other ways is he can just convince us that he's not even doing anything of any sort of persecution, and he can lull you to sleep on the battlefield. And that's his tactic right now in America and the Western world. Battle is future. No, it isn't, friends. It's today. He seduced us into a nap on a battlefield. But Revelation is loudly saying, don't fall asleep. It actually, he yells to the church of Sardis, wake up, he yells at him. Because the, the bottom line is the war has never stopped raging. It might have changed form in our context, but there is still a war that every morning you wake up, you step onto a battlefield. And, and so, no, I, this concept of a, of a future suffering, yet yeah, no, I, the history of the church has given testimony that Christians have been suffering ever since the dragon turned their attention to us. And you're, yeah, I think that's good. I think that's Let me just add, add to that. The phrase last days is important for us to understand throughout the New Testament is that not only John, but others viewed themselves as living in the last days. Uh, I teach Second Timothy at Ozark, and one of the things that I talk about with my students is that Paul's in prison, and he is passing the gospel on to Timothy, and he expects Timothy to suffer. And he, fa he, in fact, he says, all of us who follow Jesus will experience suffering, 
And it's this expectation of living in the last days, that we will go through times of tribulation or times of, of suffering, using that word in 2 Timothy. And he uses in-time metaphors there, Moses and Janus and Jambres, and he uses all of these Old Testament metaphors to say, you're living in these times, Timothy. He calls a man of God. Man of God is a phrase used of Old Testament prophets who stood up against the idolatry of the culture. So over and over again, what we find in these various contexts is that the disciples believed that they were living in the last days, the inaugurated kingdom that was promised. Was it completely fulfilled yet? No, there was still some of that that was yet to be fulfilled. That's what we look forward to when we look forward to new heaven and new earth and the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of all of the promises that we have and when it comes to the presence that we have with Jesus, when it comes to this um, eternal life that we anticipate and yet we experience some of that now. Because eternal life is not just a chronological eternal life. It's a fullness of life. We experience that now in Jesus. And so there, there is a yet to come, a, a more full picture of what is promised and what is hoped for. Yeah. Well, I want to, I know we are getting close to the end here. So this is the last question I will ask for tonight. Um, but the question came in, when Satan is bound for a thousand years. So first off, when Satan is bound, um, are, are Satan's fallen angels bound as well. So here's, obviously there's two parts to this question. First off, is the thousand years literal or what is, what is, what is he talking about there? Which I know we, you know, we've kind of addressed at some point already, but I think the, probably the more important thing that I think that I would love to just, for us to walk away with is what it means that Satan is bound and who all that, that includes. Again, if you've been following on Wednesday night, you understand um, where I'm coming from in my interpretation that, that bound is the concept of limited not the concept that Satan can't do anything or, or by extension that, that his angels uh, can't do anything. And so is Satan limited in um, the Gospels? Yes, he is limited. Jesus is limiting him with his ability to attack us. So the ability to accuse is taken away. Where? At the cross. The ability to uh, give a final verdict of death is taken away. Where? At the empty tomb. He is limited. Throughout Revelation, it says this about Satan, as well as the, the minions that are, that are represented in, Re in Revelation. They were given. Well, who gave them? Well, it's permission. God, God is, is allowing them to, but there's a limitation to that throughout Revelation. The language there is language of limitation. Well, what is limitation? It's, it's a binding. It's a limit. You can't go beyond a certain extent. And so, yes, I, I do believe that Revelation 20 has symbolic imagery that is there as well. And so when it comes to a key, when it comes to imprisonment imagery, is that imagery symbolic? Yes. Is there a literal meaning behind it? Yes. But that literal meaning is that he is limited in his capacity to attack God's people, the church. What did Jesus say about the church? As he's talking to Peter, the gates of Hades are not going to prevail. We quote that all the time. So is there a limit? Yeah, there's a limit. And the, and the hope in Revelation 20 is that the gospel will go out to all the nations. The limitation that Satan has is to deceive the nations. Well, what has happened from the book of Acts onward? The gospel has been taken to all nations. And so again, understanding that context would be my understanding, at least my interpretation of that idea of binding in Revelation chapter 20. What time are we done? Eight o'clock. We, we got 10 minutes. Oh, that's plenty so. of time. Uh... This is one of my favorite. This is actually, this is actually what I did my master's thesis and my PhD dissertation on. Is these seven ver ten verses? <laughs> You've been waiting to get to this the entire night. We saved it till the very end. Here's the reason why. All right, I... have a great night, everybody. <laughs> We're so glad you did. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yes, it won't be that. Um, here's the reason why I love this is because it's so weird. Like nowhere else in the entire Bible. 
do we have an image like this? And it's always been confounding to me. I'm like, what in the world is happening? Now, put yourself in the place of the Christians that are hearing this. Okay, there are tons of, matter of fact, Revelation 20 is pulling in, if you've been tracing the themes for the first 19 chapters, he's pulling in all kinds of the themes and he's culminating it into this one image of the binding imprisonment and release of Satan. That's always a key part too. We talk about the binding, about the imprisonment. But if you are sitting in the pews of, of, of the churches of Revelation, and this is what you hear, you hear, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. You think, okay, okay. And then comes verse two. He sees the dragon. You're like, yeah, he sees the dragon. That ancient serpent. Ooh, that reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Who is the devil or Satan? That exact phrase comes in Revelation chapter 12, verse nine, after he's kicked out of heaven. Exact phrase. So it's saying, hey, remember what we were talking about in 12? We're talking about it here again. Then he says, he threw them into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from the deceiving the nations anymore. And you're like, yep. And then it says this, until the thousand years were ended, after that, he must be set free for a short time. And you go, hold on, what did you just say? And then John just kind of ignores it. And for three, four verses, he's like, let's talk about reigning. I saw thrones on which were seated. You're like, hold on, stop for a second. Why must he be released? What is that about? But verses four through six, he doesn't even talk about it. He just throws it in there like this little bomb that goes off in the room. He's just like, I'm just going to ignore it and just keeps going. And then in verse seven, he picks it back up. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And again, I'm going, this was the question that drove me crazy. I was like, why must Satan be released? You have to hear it through the image that is happening if you're sitting in the pews of Asia Minor. So let's piece a couple of things together, okay? First of all, the word key is huge here. First time the word key is used is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Um, and I believe verses 17 and 18 of Revelation 1 summarizes the entire book. That John turns to see the voice that is speaking to him, and he falls down at the feet of Jesus as though dead. And then Jesus reaches out and touches him. That's Revelation. That's the whole point of the book. And then Jesus says these beautiful words. Don't be afraid. That's his first words to John on Patmos. Hey, buddy, don't be afraid. He's like, why? Because I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Like, you remember? He's like, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the the beginning and the end. I died, but now I've come back to life. And then he says this in verse 18. And I hold the key over death and Hades. He is sovereign over death in Hades. He is sovereign over the dominion of darkness. How? Because of the death and resurrection. That's the first time it is used. The second time it is used is in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus talks about, I am the one that holds the keys of David, which is referencing back to the sovereignty over death in Hades that he achieved at the death and resurrection. The next time it's used is in Revelation chapter 9, whenever the key is given to this star and he unlocks the abyss, which would have been death in Hades. But where does that key come from? It's the sovereignty that Jesus attained at the cross and the resurrection. Is this making sense how the image works? The next time, the last time, and it's used four times. Oh man, that's such a good number. In the book of Revelation, you do not measure numbers, you weigh them. The number four is a number of completion usually attached to the earth. 
So Revelation chapter 7, you have the four angels that are at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. Or we have people in heaven from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Four, it's a number of completion usually attached to the earth. That's why the first four of the seals are affecting things on earth. The first four of the bowls affecting things on earth. The first four of the trumpets affecting things on earth. It's a number of completion usually attached to the earth. And the fourth time the word key is used is right here in verse 1 of chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key. Immediately you'd be going, oh, you mean the sovereignty and authority over death in Hades that Jesus received at the cross and the resurrection. So he uses the key in the chain to bind Satan. This is one of the reasons why what, what Jim said about binding means limited or constrained is so important. But it's connected to, this is the question that whenever people say, how do you argue that Satan is bound? I say this, I have to be convinced that the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit did not limit Satan at all. And if you can convince me of that, then I will say he is not bound. The problem is I think that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit limited Satan a whole lot. Not to mention the fact, remember like I said in chapter 12, he's no longer allowed to go into heaven and accuse. He can't, do, he can't pull a Job anymore. Remember in Job, he appears in heaven, and he's like, I've got a problem with your righteous one. Now God's like, sorry, you can't do that anymore. And whenever you lose access to the throne room, that limits your ability. And I always like to remind people too, it's like you do understand that half the New Testament was written whenever Paul was bound in chains. Bound doesn't mean eliminated or eradicated or you have no ministry. It just means you can't go and preach the words to the people, but you can write them a letter. So now all of a sudden we have though Satan is bound and put into prison. Here's what's interesting though. In verse seven, notice what it says. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. What does it not say? I'm, that audience participation would be requested here. What does it not say? He's not, the chains aren't gone. And that's a fascinating image. Why? Because it reminds me of something in the Roman world. The Roman world, they had something called a Roman triumphal procession. And a Roman triumphal procession was the climax of a victory. Only emperors after the time, after 19 BC, only emperors could celebrate triumphal processions. And when you had conquered these, this enemy that was insurmountable, the Senate would be so overwhelmed by your gift that they would have a parade for you that would actually last multiple days. It was this, everybody would come, and usually if you were a Roman citizen, you would come to the parade wearing a white robe. Does that sound familiar? Revelation 19, 11 through 21, where Jesus is coming, and he's on this white horse, and all of his army has white robes. It's a triumph procession imagery. And the, the emperor would be riding on a chariot pulled by four white horses. So even the white horse of 19, it's going, hint, hint. There's something happening here. Then what they would do is they would be parading all of these spoils of war. As a matter of fact, some of them would last three days because they would find all kinds of treasures. And you know, I know how in our parades we have floats. You guys know what I'm talking about with floats? That came from the Roman triumph processions where they would have floats that would depict certain aspects of the war and the victory of the moment. And they would even take enemy soldiers and save them for the floats and then make them reenact moments of the battle that they lost and execute them on the spot. But the key, the, the, the key moment of every Roman triumphal procession 
was whenever finally the chief enemy leader would be bound and marched in chains right before the emperor. And he would then be taken to the temple, uh, the temple of Jupiter, the steps, and then the chief enemy leader would be executed as a sacrifice to, to the Roman gods. Now let's go back to this imagery. Satan is released in verse 7. But he's released from prison, but what is he not released from? His chains. And then what happens? He marches and he reenacts the war. But there is no war, is there? This is the third time of the book of Revelation where they gather for war, but there is no battle. So what happens? Well, let's look at around uh, second half of verse 8. In the number, they march like the sand of the seashore. Verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Fire coming down from heaven reminds me of Elijah at the sacrifice moment. Whenever the fire comes down at the altar and offers up a sacrifice to Yahweh. Here is this whole imagery. This is what it's saying. This is the binding of Satan imagery. It's saying this. Hey, Christians. We've already won the battle. We're just waiting for the victory parade. Jesus won the battle 2,000 years ago on a cross. So why are we living as if the battle is still up in the air? Why are we still fearing as if Satan owns you? Jim brought up a passage that to me is very significant. Matthew chapter 16. The keys of the kingdom are given to Peter and it says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And the word gates is significant to me because gates is a defensive weapon. In that context, the defensive weapon belongs to the kingdom of Satan. But many of us are acting like that we are the ones cowering behind our gates, hoping that Satan won't breach our defense. No, he has been defeated. Have we forgotten? Whenever elections come, and the person that you hoped would win doesn't, you need to remember that we are not on the defensive. Whenever suffering comes and the diagnosis isn't what you thought, we are not on the defensive. For Christ already won the battle. We're just awaiting his triumphal procession. And that's how the book of Revelation ends before it moves into the new heavens and the new earth. And for the churches sitting in the pews of Revelation, they would go, let's go get them. Charge. To me, that'll preach. But it has. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, hey, when it comes to time, we recognize some of you have kids back in childcare. I just want to say, for those of you especially who have journeyed along with me on Wednesday night, this was kind of a, a fun way to wrap up. And I know we didn't get to every question, and, and boy, we didn't answer everything that you have as questions. I appreciate your journey and discipleship of, of coming to not only Revelation, but to Scripture. Um, I just want to encourage you, John's, John's opening is a blessing that says, blessed are those, those of you who take it to heart, you obey it, you listen to it, it changes you. And so, yes, we look into Scripture, we look into it, it's also turned, like James says, to a mirror. We look into it to, to see this reflection of ourselves, asking about ourselves as disciples of Jesus. Am I walking more like him? Do I look more like him? I'm, is my allegiance to him? And that's my prayer for you is the way I'll leave. So I want to pray for us, and then we'll head out for this evening. Thanks. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and study your word. Um, God, I pray that we can do that in a way that honors you. God, we pray that you speak through your spirit, through your word to us. 
God, help us as we live in a world where you have called us to live as a people who are serving you, who are giving you our allegiance and our worship. Father, you call us to be a people who reflect Jesus in our walk and in our interactions and our priorities. God, I pray that our our study this evening and and our, our conversations over the course of the last few weeks will open our eyes to the fact that you're on the throne. Open our eyes to the value of the gift that Jesus gives in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. God, speak to us good news, gospel. And God, we pray that we will in turn see the love that you have for us and love you in return. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.